0: Welcome to Machine Learning. <clears throat> Let's talk spot stocks. Why did the Internet stocks represent a new type of investor? The individual investor funded the Internet boom and the incredible risk associated with the Internet boom and transferring tremendous wealth into the coffers of the wealthy. During the time period between 1996 and 1998, net flows to domestic mutual funds exceeded $500 billion, bringing total mutual fund assets to $5.2 trillion. The Internet stocks represented a new type of investor, the individual investor who was more interested in companies' market capitalizations, future growth estimates, revenue velocity, and web traffic, and less dependent on profitable fundamentals. Venture capitalists needed the individual investor to fund the tremendous risk associated with the new economy. By 1999, total financial, household financials reached 50%. In 1998, technology industries generated uh, $955 billion in revenues and represented 53% of business expenditures and contributed to 8% of the GDP and 37% of the new jobs. Companies like Microsoft, Intel, Dell, Cisco, and Oracle made up almost 65% of the total sharehold revenue. And I guess you would classify each one of those companies somewhat as an internet stock. They definitely were related to the internet boom. We like to speculate on things that are new and different. It's in our genes when great technology is coming along, whether they are canals, Railroads, autos, computers, internet—everyone wants a piece of action. Speculation tends to go hand in hand with entrepreneurship," said uh, Roger McNamee. Uh, this this book was from a that that excerpt was from a book called The Internet Bubble. Um, basically, he goes on to say talk about different uh, companies. That uh, represented a lot of the internet boom, like companies like the Globe, or eBay, or Market um, Priceline, Ktel, um, and uh, he said venture capitalist rate of return over thirty per- year a thirty year period of time was twenty three percent. So that means that they were p- picking uh, lots of different companies, but they were looking for the superstar company that would uh, would prevail today we've got lots of companies that uh, um, investors are looking at snap uh, neo Tesla um, AMC. These are new. Some of the new rising stars, Uh, Nicola, if they can hit production. Waiting to see if they hit production because once they do, uh, there's going to be a huge surge in capitalization uh, that moves that way. But the in it said in 1973, KP totaled one billion dollars and invested into 300 startup companies, and uh, the company's net grew worth grew to $300 billion market capitalizations. These companies included names such as Compact, Sun, Microsystems, AOL, uh, Netscape, Amazon, and At Home. KP leveraged its record into raising a series of 12 increasing large funds. The largest held $350 million mainly for university endowments from Harvard, Stanford, MIT. KP partners reaped 30% of the capital gains and 3% annual management fees. KP needed to conquer and gain control of the internet. Uh, Microsoft never became an ally because instead of the most fierce competitor in the race for control, AOL, Netscape, At Home, Excite in a force to the internet uh, portal and design barriers to keep MSM, Microsoft MSN online service a distant competitor. That did not happen. Microsoft now MSN is uh, the dominant competitor. KP had 5.9 billion in revenues, 26 million in losses, and 12-month period between uh, March 31st to 1999. What uh, remained were 14 companies with 1.7 billion in revenues and 704 million in losses. KB was destined for a massive shakeup once the investor, individual investors realized that they could not divide financial gravity. What must go up must come down. If you don't hit earnings, you come down. That's financial gravity. Uh, and so even though they, they were looking at this new economy, the fundamentals of financial investing returned, and they started looking at earnings and the risk that was... Uh, uh, associated with with those with those potentials for growth and uh, the market started to correct the most dangerous risk is market risk. removing market risk is expensive. Uh, we we ha- have to take uh, we will take technology risk over market risk any day and the reason why technology risk can be uh, adjusted so quickly you know you can you can look at uh, vulnerabilities in the technology and repair it and that's what's happening with machine learning we're looking at vulnerabilities in the machine learning new algorithms are being created Uh, problems are being solved new software is being generated and it's being generated quickly companies are coming up with solutions that minimize the risks that are associated with existing technology and uh, we're starting to see it you know even with gpt3 you know that one of the risks is, is that it'll say nonsense but Actually, I listened to GPT three the other day, and uh, then I started thinking about what it was saying, and it, there, there was uh, culturally, there is a lot of truth to what it was saying. So I'm wondering if uh, the truth sounds nonsensical, and so we th- we think that uh, that basically GPT three is crazy, but in reality, if we had more understanding of how we derive that uh, conclusion, maybe we could ask it, well, how did you derive that conclusion? And it could cite uh, a number of different sources or it could give us a chain of logic, then we might be able to uh, accept some of the conclusions of GPT-3 right off And that's one of the things that I, we've known for a long time. The more uh, you become an expert, the less you're able. people are able to understand uh, what you're saying because Um, it requires some frame of reference, and most of them don't have that context or frame of reference. Not saying that they are stupid, but they just don't have that frame of reference. And so uh, they they think, well, because I don't understand it, therefore it must be nonsensical. And uh, that's not true. Okay. Um, Why why do investors move money from... uh, stocks to bonds okay well that and that's the reason why you would do that is uh because you're looking for you're looking for growth and um and you're weighing the the growth against the technology or the um financial risk and so You also can do calculations into the future. So you're looking at what you expect the future growth to be. So you project out into the future what your future growth will be. And then you look at the cost of the investment today uh, as it relates to the future growth. And then you measure your risk associated with that. And if it falls below a certain threshold, then uh, you take the risk. That's what I also found uh, yesterday when I did the uh, loan loan risk analysis, they do build what they call a strategic acceptance matrix, And what that strategic uh, matrix is, it looks at the estimated value of the loan, and then it, it compares the probability of default, and then it uses a certain threshold. And based on a the 85% confidence uh, uh, quintile, it then uh, Determines a bad rate, so then you you calculate your bad rate. That's the expected losses, and uh, and then you calculate that against uh, the overall loans. And if your expected losses are significantly lower, uh, then you're willing to take uh, the risk of uh, accepting uh, these loans that are are maybe they're high have a higher threshold, so that they're accepted uh, more readily. And so you do take those risk of potential default for the opportunity of capitalizing the maximum capitalization that's possible on the loans based on probability so used uh, XGB boost to to calculate those probabilities and uh, and and so that I got within a certain uh percentage of accuracy and then I used uh, thresholding to Increase the number of loans that uh, were were given out based on um, a threshold value for whether or not I thought that they would default or not and then use the bad rate to calculate the estimated losses. And so you can use that thresholding then to determine if the risk reward is worth it. Okay, so going back to bonds. When commodity prices go up, stock prices go down. And the reason why is because commodities become more expensive the cost of operations become more expensive and therefore the expected revenue in terms of profit um, are reduced so if you look at the simple cost of goods equation and net income uh, as the commodity prices go up that means that that there'll be less net income uh, in generally given operation costs are fixed uh, bond yields are weak as lower interest rates have drove down yields. And uh, yeah so the Fed uh, largely affects uh, the IOUs that the people are giving them money for. And so as they, uh, as those uh, yields are weak, that means that the Fed um, is uh, either inflating the money supply, which they did. They inflated the money supply, which then reduced down the yields. But that has the effect of reducing down your purchase power parity. And that's not good because now things become, we can, can buy less for the amount of money that we uh, spend. Real estate bubble is an investment bubble waiting to be burst with a possible resulting loss of wealth ranging between two to $3 trillion. Prices are too high for investors to make money. Currency valuations are a function of national debt. The U.S. is the largest debtor with $8 uh, trillion dollars of international IOUs uh, today that number is significantly larger um, so if we l- just looked at uh, Japan um, it's close to two trillion dollars and in China I think it's about three trillion dollars so just those two countries alone uh, you-, you could say it's probably over five to six trillion dollars and uh, for the last 20 years, the U.S. has been borrowing in the world financial markets because of large trade deficits and continually borrowing has drove down the value of the dollar. So, yeah, trade large trade deficits are inflationary. Increased government spending and Fed printing of money has created a devaluating dollar and reduced the foreign investment. And I think it's a dead dollar, uh, which is scary because if the dollar has died, then that means that the new money in the form of M2 and M3 is what's uh, uh, keeping the economy up and running. In 12-month period between June uh, 2003 and June 2004, foreign investment went a negative $155 billion. Weak dollar made commodities seem more expensive. And as in the case of oil, between 2002 and 2004, crude prices rose 64% in dollars and 16% in euros. And why did it not graze one-to-one with the euro? Uh, uh, So that that must have meant that something was transferring. Either they were doing dollar uh, uh, currency swaps or they um, had some way where they were propping up that euro because it should have affected the euro equally. so it basically then made the euro seem very strong, which it was very weak. It was the sixth man of Asia uh, and Europe. It was, it, so the dollar lost 40% against the euro at the same period. And so that's very conflicting. There's lots of confusion in that period. And I think if we looked at the data, we would see that uh, um, this was definitely a fiscal policy that uh, allowed the dollar to be so weak against the euro. The strength or weakness of the dollar has nothing to do with the price of the commodity. Commodity price is driven down by increasing demand, resulting in a shortage of perceived or a perceived shortage. All right, folks, that's all I'm going to talk today um, on uh, market analysis. But, uh, uh, yeah, well, as you think about uh, bonds, commodities, and stocks, think how they relate. And the fourth one is real estate. Um uh, and possibly a fifth one, which would be precious metals. But think how all five of those relate to each other, and you'll always be able to figure out how money works.